And, and, okay, so for Tuesday, what you should read if you haven't read it yet is the essay on man. Um, I know you're just longing to go back to the heroic couplet. Let's just, once, once you get addicted to it, your life will just <laughs> never be the same unless you're reading heroic couplets, like, a lot. No? No. All right. <laughs> I tried. Um, there are romantic poets who write in uh, heroic couplets. Well, why am I telling you this? You don't like them. Um, they are in couplets at any rate. Um, since we're starting, we're ending the class by, by starting with actual romantic poets. Um, I just thought I'd mention that. Shelley um, was, well, Keats, one of Keats's most famous lines is in a poem written in heroic couplets, one of his earliest poems, The Thing of Beauty is a Joy Forever, um, is the first line of his poem, Endymion. Um, it's actually not technically a row of couplets because they, they are often open, but it's a thing of beauty is a joy forever. Its loveliness increases. It will never perish. So you can see how different that is from what Dryden or Pope would do, which is that they would end the couplet with um, a strong pause, um, whereas he just enjams. Um, it's loveliness in, a thing of beauty is a joy forever. Its loveliness increases. It will never perish. Um, ever and never being rhymed there. Um, Shelley has, um, some of his greatest poems are in couplets. Um, Julian and Madelow especially um, is a wonderful, wonderful poem in couplets. It's about Shelley's um, friendship with Byron. Shelley is Julian in that poem and Byron is Count Madelow. And um, the um, greatest and most Hopian or Dryden-esque, but in their funny mode of the formal poets of Romanticism, that is, those who write in strict forms, those for whom form is a delight, um, is Byron. And um, he's as clever with his rhymes, or even cleverer with his rhymes, than anyone. Um, so he's a, a, he's a good person to read also. Um, but today we're just going to do one poem by Coleridge and one poem by Shelley as the very end of the 18th century. Um, are any of you planning to take Romanticism uh, in the spring? Romanticism? Oh, well, Roman yeah. The, I, I, don't, I can't remember what it's called now. It might be called Natural Supernaturalism. Quinny's class. Um, oh, that's what it is, yeah. Yeah, I was yeah. thinking about it. Yeah, you should. It's, yeah? yeah? No, you should. What can I tell you? I'm not biased. Um, no, the, I mean, I am because the poetry is so great. Um, if, if you liked 18th century poetry, you should take it, but if you didn't, you should really take it. Because if you didn't like 18th century poetry, but you think you like poetry, that's the kind of poetry you will like. Um, so, uh, well, so we'll, we'll look at some of it. So let's start with, um, Frost and Midnight. What'd you guys think of this? Of these? of the two poems that, was it one of those cases where the assignment was so short you didn't do it? <laughs> you know how that is. Oh, it's so short. I'll just do it in class or we'll go over it in class or whatever, right? So um, that's fine if that's the way you felt. Yeah, Brenda. I, I felt like um, Wordsworth was sort of more clearly articulating what Cooper was trying to get at in the past. Uh-huh. Yeah, say more. That's nice. In what sense? Um, this whole, like, eternal spring. Mm-hmm. Um, this, like, happiness despite um, sort of the hardships of both nature and, and emotional hardships. 
Okay, nice. Yeah, I, that's that's really good. Um, it's Tintern Abbey is probably Wordsworth's first really great poem, um, at least his first really great long poem. Uh, I thought of bringing in a couple of the lyrical ballads, um, which are Wordsworth in a mode that will remind you more of Blake's Songs of Innocence, but then I thought, well, it's good to see both those channels into Romanticism, and I think that's right. It's also, um, I gave you a version of Tintern Abbey with a couple of notes by Wordsworth in it. That was in the original um, publication of Lyrical Ballads in 1798, um, and the second note especially, where he says, Young has a line kind of like this, although I don't remember it exactly. Oh, that was... Um, that's Wordsworth's note. Oh, thought you, you thought that was you. me? Yeah. yeah, you confused me with Wordsworth. How flattering. <laughs> um, no, those are Wordsworth's notes. Um, uh, and uh, the line is the line that we, we talked about um, when we were doing Night the Seventh, um, how we half-create what we perceive. Um, for Wordsworth, that becomes both what they half-create and what perceive. And he knows that he's remembering it from young, um, and what's kind of nice about it is that he's half creating the line that he's also perceiving from, from Young. Um, he's quoting it, but he can't remember it exactly, but he's turning it into um, the line that's most meaningful to him. Um, and uh, then he's flagging the fact that, yeah, he gets it from Young, but yeah, he's making it Wordsworthian. But that was one of the linkages that I wanted to point out. I like the idea you think, or maybe I don't like the idea that you think I would be that casual. Uh, Young kind of has a line like this. Um, that's part of your reading, too. My sense that Young might... No, that's classroom. Um, Lumber. What? Lumber. Lumber, yes. Um, so, uh, let's start with Frost of Midnight, which is earlier than um, uh, Tintern Abbey by six months. Five months. Seven minus two equals... Um, um, and... Uh, just to remind you or to say about lyrical ballads, I guess while I'm reminding, um, you all know that if you don't have your papers today, which most of you do, right, um, you can, if you want, take a week without penalty. Uh, so, so don't freak out. Um, just make them good. Um, all right. And um, do you want those in your mailbox? Yeah, or email them to me. Either way is fine. Um, so if you don't have them now, uh, Tuesday is good if you come to the makeup, which you all said you would, um, except for Liz. Uh, I'm guessing. Uh, yes, I know. You have to be at the voluntary. I got it. Um, <laughs> that's good. You should go there. Um, and uh, Or email or put them in my box. Um, so in 1798, Wordsworth and Culverish published this volume called Lyrical Ballads together. We talked about it a little bit already. Um, it was published anonymously, and the um, poems were not distinguished. That is, um, if you went and bought lyrical ballads, you wouldn't know um, that there were two poets. You wouldn't know how many poets there were in it. You might guess there was one poet doing something very radical, um, because Wordsworth and Coleridge spent all their um, time, spent tons of time, talking about poetry and what they were trying to do um, in um, inventing a new kind of poetry. Um, they, they talked and talked and talked about this, and then they wrote lyrical ballads as a kind of illustration of the new kind of poetry they were writing. 
because there were collections of ballads, as I mentioned before, like Bishop Percy's, um, that were being published at the time, um, people might have thought lyrical ballads um, was a book by several hands, um, several poets um, coming together, the kind of 1798 Laurel Moon. Um, or people might have thought, well, these all really do sound like one new radical revolutionary sensibility, and they might have thought it was written by one poet. Um, lots of people knew. I mean, you know, they, their friends knew, and their friends' friends knew, and so on. But as a book, as a presentation to the world, it's presented anonymously um, with um, a one-page kind of preface and then these poems. Um, it was rightly um, regarded as revolutionary. There's a new edition of Lyrical Ballads with more poems in 1800, which is technically the last year of the 18th century, um, and then a new version in 1802. Um, Wordsworth wrote a preface to the um, 1800 version with added stuff in 1802 where he talks a little bit about um, who wrote what and why. And the basic idea was that um, he and Coleridge would write these poems, that he would write the poems, uh, the poems which didn't have any supernatural element in it. That is, that um, he thought he, Wordsworth, was against having ghosts or goblins or... Um, strange, non-existent creatures in his poems. Um, and so what he was going to do was write poems about real life the way it's really lived. And one of the poems I thought of bringing in today was an amazing poem, one that Byron makes a lot of fun of, but an amazing poem called The Idiot Boy. Um, do you know it? And um, do you want to describe it at all? So The Idiot Boy is... Um, it's a poem about um, essentially um, a cognitively low-functioning child um, who gets lost, who's an idiot, um, and who gets lost and found. It has a happy ending. Um, not all the poems do. Uh, they're children who get lost and then die. Um, but this is a poem of rural life. It's about a, a young boy who gets lost and then found and um, his parents are in absolute grief when he goes missing, and they're ecstatic when he's found the next day. And they ask him where he's been, um, but he doesn't have the words to say it, so all he says is, um, the sun did shine so cold and the wind did howl to who, and what's happened is he sees a full moon, um, and he thinks it's the sun. Um, he's been out all night, he doesn't realize it's nighttime. Um, and so he's got this very, very um, restricted ability to describe where he's spent the night. Um, but it's still the last line of the poem, and it's, it's kind of a beautiful line. Um, and it's, it's emotionally beautiful, but it's also poetically beautiful. Um, and it's part of the point of that is that um, the poem itself is not only a demonstration that the... Um, a gray, a Thomas Gray-like demonstration that the experience of these um, poor people in in the rural um, Lake District um, whose, whose um, low-functioning child disappeared is fit for tragedy. That is the whole Arthur Miller, Willie Loman tragedy of um, a common person. That's Wordsworth's invention, or Wordsworth is the hugest promoter of that idea. Um, obviously you get it in Gray and in people before him, 
But Wordsworth takes that seriously, takes that experience seriously. But then not only does he do that, but he takes the experience of the child. The child isn't only the MacGuffin, as Hitchcock calls it. That is the stakes of an emotional experience. The child has an experience, and the child can put that experience in the simplest of words, um, in the most opaque of those simple words, um, but it still counts. So here you have um, one of the greatest of English poets, um, uh, arguably the greatest, I wouldn't argue it, but arguably the greatest, um, who's essentially saying, no, the idiot boy, his, that line, um, the sun did shine so, so cold, um, that's it. That's as good as, it, as, as any human expression needs to be. Um, and there's something extremely... Wordsworth started out as a radical, um, a left-wing radical, so did Coleridge. Um, and there's, uh, he later became a pompous conservative, um, uh, something that struck Shelley with horror, Mary Shelley and, and Percy Shelley. They were married, if you didn't know that. Um, spent some time reading Wordsworth's poems of the late 18-teens, and Mary Shelley wrote in her diary, we spent the last three days reading Wordsworth's The Excursion. He has become a slave. Um, that's, um, they could not believe what had happened to him. And Shelley wrote a poem called To Wordsworth, which was um, about how both he and Wordsworth were in a similar boat because they'd lost something really amazing and magnificent. Um, Wordsworth, however, didn't know it. Um, they both lost the early Wordsworth. Um, but Wordsworth didn't realize it because he was now um, um, just a just a toady. Um, but Shelley was very unhappy about that. Shelley's the next generation. He was born 22 years after Wordsworth. Um, so one loss is common, or one loss is yours, which I which one loss is mine, which you two feel, but I alone deplore, is what Shelley says. That having once sung songs consecrate to liberty that you should have stopped doing that, um, that that should, shouldn't have mattered to you. Late in life, Wordsworth was writing poems like Sonnets on the Punishment of Death, which is a series of, I think, 12 sonnets about why the death penalty is absolutely essential, um, and uh, sonnets against, um, uh, these are poems no one will ever tell you about except me, um, sonnets against secret balloting. Um, he thought the secret ballot was... Uh, radical and horrifying socialist measure, um, and he was totally against it. He thought that you should always be telling those in power who you were voting for so they could rebuke you if you were voting um, irresponsibly. Um, but early on, um, the Wordsworth that matters happens to be the Wordsworth who was radical um, and left-wing. And the Coleridge who matters, Coleridge never became quite so conservative as Wordsworth, but the Coleridge who matters was the Coleridge who was radical and left-wing. Um, and um, uh, so what we're looking at is the poems they wrote early on, and, and that partly took, and I think this is true throughout Wordsworth's life, it would be unfair to say it isn't, but it did take um, on, it took the form on his part of um, taking seriously what um, people's experience, whether they were eloquent in conventional ways in the description of their experience or not. And the idiot boy, in a way, is that taken to 
um, a very, very strong um, degree. Another poem of his that you probably know, especially because it was um, parodied by Lewis Carroll, um, is the poem We Are Seven, where, um, which was in the 1798 version of Lyrical Ballads, one of Wordsworth's first great poems. Um, do people know that one? Is this uh, um, a little child, um, but five years old, that lightly draws its breath? A something little child, what should it know of death is how it begins. And then he says he comes upon a child um, who's playing outside her cottage door. And he says, um, how many people live in your house, little maid? Um, and she says, well, there's my mother, my father, and my um, four siblings. So that means that we are seven. And he says, so where are your siblings? And um, two of them are dead and two of them are gone away to sea. And so he says, he starts giving her an arithmetic lesson. He says, well, if two of them are dead, then you're only five, really, huh? Don't you think? Um, see, that's why I did that seven minus five thing earlier. You had no idea. Um, <laughs> don't you think? Um, and she keeps insisting that, no, there's seven. Um, and the point is that she totally shows him up, um, that she, is, she um, regards the dead as mattering. And he's just a, a silly stranger who wants to give her an arithmetic <coughs> lesson. Um, so it's a poem. A lot of the lyrical ballads are poems where the speaker thinks he's smarter um, and more sophisticated than those he's talking to, um, and then gets shown up in a in, by, by the simplest of um, of expressions or refusals to agree. As in, we are seven. Um, so Frost and Midnight is the poem Coleridge wrote. Coleridge was two years younger than Wordsworth, but spectacularly famous um, already in his early 20s. Um, he was just a, he was a prodigy, um, which is one reason why Barbo um, uh, was so interested in meeting him and then wrote that um, poem that we read to him. Um, Frost and Midnight is one of his great, great poems. And... Um, so the child in the poem is, is his first son, Hartley Coleridge, um, who became a minor poet um, um, in his adulthood. But um, none of the prophet. What Hartley says about this poem is that um, it was a lovely poem and a lovely idea, but he said, Hartley had a miserable life, and he said, um, poets do seldom prove prophets, was his note in his edition of his father's poems. Um, all the things that Coleridge said would happen to him didn't. Um, but um, it's a beautiful poem about uh, a cold midnight. The frost performs its secret ministry unhelped by any wind. Um, what's the ministry of frost? What secret ministry does it, does it perform? Frosting, um, forming icicles, it'll turn out. Um, making things get colder and colder, even though what's really beautiful about this is you can feel what a calm night this is. It's midnight, and there's no wind blowing at all. It's just so cold that there's no wind. The owlet's cry came loud, and hark again, loud as before. So this is a present tense poem. Um, it really is. He's writing this um, on a night of frost at midnight. Um, he's writing, and he did hear the owl. We can feel that, um, we know that Burns really did find the mouse, um, really did plow up the mouse. Um, and this time, 
Coleridge really did hear the owl. The owl's cry came loud and hark again, loud as before. The inmates of my cottage, all at rest. Inmates just means people who live there. Um, it doesn't. Um, it came to mean people in an asylum or a prison, but that was because it was a euphemism for being prisoners. And then it's one of those cases where the euphemism took on the um, negative coloration of the thing that it was supposed to be disguising. Um, but here's just inmates. The inmates of my cottage, all at rest, have left me to that solitude which suits abstruser musings um, so he can meditate, he can be alone. Save that at my side my, cradle inf my cradled infant slumbers peacefully. Tis calm indeed, going back to the unhelped by any wind. Tis calm indeed, so calm that it disturbs and vexes meditation with its strange and extreme silentness. So that's an experience that he's interested in that we've all had sometimes. Um, in a movie, it's things are too quiet. Um, here, partly what's so interesting about it is what is he telling you um, by telling you that? What is he telling you about the poem by telling you that it's so calm that it vexes meditation with its strange and extreme silentness? Yeah? The poem itself should make you meditate. Okay, so the poem itself is a meditation, should therefore make you meditate. Um, yeah, Liz? That everything that's going to be falling is a vexed meditation. Okay, that everything that's going to be falling is a vexed meditation, or at least that he's, that he's vexed to um, say these things, that there's some um, disquietude in the, in the quiet itself. Um, yeah, that everything he's about to say is going to be in that mode. I would put it a little bit more fundamentally that this is why, the, why he starts writing the poem. He stayed up late to think, but it's so quiet and he can't really think. Um, so he thinks about why he can't think, how his meditation isn't going on freely. Um, it's probably the case, and Coleridge is certainly suggesting this, um, that the most abstruse musings, to use his phrase, abstruser musings, when we're, you know, you know why people say a penny for your thoughts? You know that saying? Um, do you know what the origin of that saying is? A penny for your thoughts. Um, it's a bet, actually, that someone is making that you don't know what you're thinking that if you're asked what are you thinking, you won't be able to recover it, that it'll be like waking up from a dream. Not because it's a dream, but because you're so lost in thought that you're not paying attention. The part of you that pays attention to what you're thinking, the part of you that's an audience to your own thought, that part is lost in thought also. So you're so lost in thought that you don't know where you are. And if someone says a penny for your thoughts, they will. you won't have been you will have been thinking so hard you won't be paying attention to what you're thinking. That's what the bet is. Um, it's almost vacancy, or it looks almost like vacancy, but it's actually dark matter, you could say. Um, and so to say, a penny, to, to say um, that there's a certain kind of meditation, this is what Coleridge wants to say, abstruser musings are where you get so lost in thought that you're not keeping track of anything. 
And um, when you're done, you will have had the experience of having thought about something, but not necessarily the experience of having um, come to a conclusion or a result or an argument or a discourse. So that's the kind of absolute being lost in thought that Coleridge is thinking he's going to have. But it's so silent that he's kind of brought back to himself. And now he's not just thinking, but thinking about thinking. Thinking about how thinking works. Why am I having such trouble being lost in thought when nothing is disturbing me? And so that's the vexation. And the result of that is the poem which considers that question. Why is it that I'm not just meditating? What does silence do that I start noticing myself in the silence? And so that, that self-noticing is the poem. That's what it means for Coleridge, you could say, to write a poem, is to self-notice. We often call it self-expression. But why, would, why do people want to express themselves unless they're noticing how they're feeling? Not just feeling it, but noticing it. And when you're really lost in thought, when you're in love, of course you notice it. When you're in pain, you notice it. But when you're just lost in thought, the pure pleasure of being lost in thought is a pleasure that you don't quite notice. But now he's noticing, and that's turning into expression. So um, there's his infant, like him but not like him, totally lost in sleep, whereas he's thinking about things. Um, my cradled infant slumbers peacefully. Tis calm indeed, so calm that it disturbs and vexes meditation with its strange and extreme stillness. Sea, hill, and wood, this populous village. Sea, hill, and wood with all the numberless goings-on of life inaudible as dreams. So it's a kind of lucid daydreaming that he's doing now. The thin blue flame lies on my low-burnt fire and quivers not. That's how peaceful and still it is. Only that film which fluttered on the grate still flutters there, the sole unquiet thing. Methinks its motion in this hush of nature. Um, film, he um, explains in a note, in actually quite a long note to this poem, um, the film there is just a little bit of um, of that not quite ash that will sometimes come out of wood fires. That is where um, it, it has the consistency of like a scrap of ribbon or of paper. Um, and so it, it's a little bit of ash that nevertheless is a little bit more, more, more coherent than ash, which just crumbles into smoke. Um, and that's the film that, that is stuck um, to the grate. And what he, the childhood um, superstition, it's called the stranger. Um, and the childhood superstition, which he's going to talk about in the next stanza, was that if you saw a stranger in the grate, um, that is, if, if you got a little bit of film like that in your fire, um, that was a sign that you would get news from home. Um, so seeing this little film now reminds him of this previous time in his life. Um, so um, there it is, and it's fluttering there, this little fluttering bit of not-quite-burnt um, material fluttering there. The sole unquiet thing, methinks, 
its motion in this hush of nature gives it dim sympathies with me who live, making it a companionable form. So that little film fluttering on the grate, the only thing moving um, is like him, a companion, the only other unquiet thing, the only other vexed thing, making it a companionable form. Great phrase, companionable form. Um, in a way, that's what the poem is going to be, is a companionable form. Whose puny flaps and freaks the idling spirit by its own moods interprets everywhere echo or mirror seeking of itself and makes a toy of thought so that um, again we project I project onto what this film is doing um, I interpret it by my own moods it's unquiet and I interpret its unquietness as unquietness um, and then I think about the way I do that, how I interpret it, how I interpret it by my own moods. Um, and um, the idling spirit, the spirit that's doing nothing, it's just idling. The idling spirit um, interprets it by its own moods um, because what the idling spirit does is to seek an echo and mirror of itself. And by doing that, it makes thought into a toy, into something not serious, something that's just looking for echoes or mirrors. But the film itself is a kind of toy, um, the toy that thought then identifies with. But now, this reminds him of the past. So here he is absolutely in the present. It's midnight. It's frosty. Everything is silent. And that silence becomes so silent that it vexes him to self-notice. And then he thinks of the past, which is what the romantics always do, is, is like Gray, they remember what it was like when they were young, often what it was like when they were at school, although Wordsworth almost never talks about school because his um, school days were not so good. But um, they remember what school was like. And so here Coleridge is remembering but oh, how oft, how oft at school with most believing mind. So that was a different mood, one in which he believed what he saw. Um, not unquiet, but believing. But oh, how oft, how oft at school with most believing mind. Presageful, that is kind of um, having a presentiment of something about to happen. Have I gazed upon the bars to watch that fluttering stranger? the bars of the fire, of the andirons. Um, have I gazed upon the bars to watch that fluttering stranger, that is, that film? And as oft, with unclosed lids, already had I dreamt of my sweet birthplace. And the old church tower, whose bells, the poor man's only music, rang from morn to evening all the hot fair day, so sweetly that they stirred and haunted me with a wild pleasure, falling on mine ear, most like articulate sounds of things to come. So notice now that he's remembering a time at school when he did what? He sees the film, The Stranger, on the bars, and what does that do, do to him?
Yeah. Yeah, he's he so he remembers a time when he was young, and um, saw a fire burning like this, which made him remember a time when he was younger. So there are two um, levels of memory backwards here. I remember the time that when I was at school, I saw the same thing I'm seeing now, although I was a different person and saw it in a somewhat different mood. But what was similar between them was that time when I was at school, I remembered the time, that was boarding school, I remembered a time when I was um, before school, when I was just a little child, um, my sweet birthplace. So here I remember being at school and at school daydreaming with, opening, with open eyes and remembering my sweet birthplace and the old church tower. Um, on a hot, fair day. So it's cold. That's why there's a fire in school. It's a cold day. That's why they lit the fire. It's like today. Um, but um, he remembers on that cold day at school all those years ago, a hot summer day before he even went to school. Um, and um, it filled him with pleasure then. Um, that um, he was stirred and haunted in school with the wild pleasure of remembering the hot fair day. Now, at the age of 26, he's remembering the time that memories filled and haunted him with pleasure. And um, he had a feeling then at school, remembering the past, that um, he would soon see a future like that past, that he would go home for vacation as it happens and return to where he'd been. So that memory of the memories having in 1798 of his past in, let's say, um, 1780 um, is a memory now of um, remembering in 1780 what things were like in 1775 and imagining that in 1782 they would be the same way, or in 1781 when he went home. Um, so gazed I at school, thinking about the past and the future that I thought I would have, so gazed I till the soothing things I dreamt lulled me to sleep, and sleep prolonged my dreams. So notice that what he's doing here is quite amazing how subtle and, and deep this is. He daydreamed that he was asleep. Um, I dreamt that I had been lulled to sleep. But that's a daydream. So I was daydreaming that I'd been lulled to sleep. Um, all these soothing things um, making me um, daydream that I was asleep as I had been when I was a little child and thinking that I was asleep, the sleep prolonged my dreams. Um, I was thought that I was asleep in a way that allowed me to dream that I was asleep. Um, a beautiful idea, a beautiful image. And so I brooded all the following morn, awed by the stern preceptor's face. So it's the next day now, and the teacher is stern. Um, but he's still thinking about what he thought the day before. So I brooded all the following morn, awed by the stern preceptor's face, mine eye fixed with mock study on my swimming book. You guys would know about that. Um, he's not paying attention. He's daydreaming. 
save if the door half opened and I snatched a hasty glance and still my heart leapt up for still I hoped to see the stranger's face. That is someone coming from home, a stranger to the town he's in school in because the stranger was the omen of that. The stranger, the film on the, on the um, bars is the omen that some stranger from afar from his home would come. Townsman, that is to say, or aunt or sister more beloved, my playmate when we both were clothed alike. So that's what he hoped for. And he doesn't say what happened. But the fact that he doesn't say what happened means, yeah, he hoped for it, but um, that's the content of the memory. It's not a desire fulfilled. It's just the desire that he's remembering. And then he turns back to Hartley with a kind of prayer, Dear babe, babe that sleepest cradled by my side, whose gentle breathings heard in this deep calm fill up the interspersed vacancies and momentary pauses of the thought. So when I'm not thinking, that's when things are vacant. When I stop in the midst of writing this poem, that's an interspersed vacancy. But in that vacancy, when I'm paying attention to this absolute vexing silence again, what do I hear? I hear your gentle breathings, and they fill that up. So now the sound of silence is a little bit different. My babe, so beautiful, it thrills my heart with tender gladness thus to look at thee. Um, that's an amazing thing. Can you imagine Pope or Dryden writing such a thing? It's an amazing thing to say. There's his um, little baby sleeping by his side at midnight, um, and he's just awestruck by the beauty of the child. My babe's so beautiful. It thrills my heart with tender gladness thus to look at thee and think that thou shalt learn far other lore and in far other scenes. That is to think that you're not going to worry about the stranger on the bars, the stranger at the gate, um, because you're not going to go to school in the city where I went to school. You're not going to have only um, omens from the fireplaces to comfort you. And it thrills my heart to think that, that you're going to be brought up in the country as a nature boy. Um, for I was reared in the great city, pent mid cloisters dim, and saw naught lovely but the sky and stars. So it's all horrible in the city except that I could see the sky and stars. But thou, my babe, shall wander like a breeze by lakes and sandy shores beneath the crags of ancient mountains and beneath the clouds which image in their bulk both lakes and shores and mountain crags. So you'll, the clouds themselves will light as my memory reflects an earlier memory reflecting still an earlier memory. You will live in the present where that kind of reflection is the clouds reflecting the um, hills and crags and lakes and shores and so on that they look like. Um, cloud landscapes and real landscapes, but there'll be no real difference between them. Um, so shalt thou see and hear the lovely shapes and sounds intelligible of that eternal language which thy God utters, who from eternity doth teach himself in all and all things in himself. So um, Coleridge at this Part stage of his life was a radical pantheist, and this is an expression of that pantheism, that God is everywhere and is everything. 
um, that all living things are God and God is all living things. Great universal teacher, he shall mold thy spirit and by giving make it ask. That's part of that give and take of God's omnipresence. And then a blessing. Therefore, all seasons shall be sweet to thee, whether the summer clothe the general earth with greenness, or the red breast sit and sing betwixt the tufts of snow on the bare branch of mossy apple tree, while the nigh thatch smokes in the sun thaw, that is, steams the next day um, as, as the ice melts a little bit, whether the eavedrops fall, heard only in the trances of the blast, that is, whether you hear um, the raining or the dripping of the icicles on, in a storm, and occasionally the blast will stop for a moment, and then you'll hear the dripping, and then the blast will return. So the trances of the blast, the momentary, um, absolutely different weather from the weather of pure silence now, or final kind of weather that will be sweet to you, or if the secret ministry of frost shall hang them up in silent icicles, quietly shining to the quiet moon. Um, that is say, or on what kind of nights? Yeah, nights like this. So he closes the circle, and he closes the circle in an amazingly great way which is the present reminds me of the past, which reminds me of a still farther past, which reminds me of a future that I hoped for but didn't get. But now I come back to, to the present where you are, and, and you remind me of the past and of a future which I intend will be different for you than um, for your later childhood than I remember my later childhood being. So that when you come to um, have this experience that I'm having of experiencing frost at midnight. For you, it will not be vexatious and a series of these reminders and loops back through the past and future. But for you, it will just be sweet. So Coleridge, it is sweet for Coleridge, but it's a sweetness that takes a lot of thinking and a lot of remembering and a lot of meditation. And finally, it's sweet because his babe is asleep and because he's so beautiful and because it's the baby that brings him back to the present. He couldn't do it himself, but the blessing that he gives the baby is that he will be able to do it himself, that he won't have to um, remember painful or longing incidents from the past, but will just be self-present on nights such as this. Um, so it's a poem which both il which illustrates its own wish to return to the present and have it just be the present and be sweet in the present, sweet in its silence in the present. Um, so it really, this is one of the great romantic poems. You know, reading it once obviously can't do it justice. Um, but we've come a long way from... Um, where we started. We've come a long way from Rochester. That's for <laughs> sure. Um, I wouldn't trust him to hold a baby. <laughs> um, he was, yeah, you might be right. <laughs> um, he was about to screw up his life really royally. 
Um, what did he do? What did, how did he split the um, Too much opium. Yeah, Way too much opium. <laughs> Seriously too much opium. Even a little opium, I hasten to tell you, to warn you, is too much. But um, he had way more than a little, yeah. I thought it was laudanum. Laudanum is opium dissolved in alcohol. Oh. So, so. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, wow. yeah. Um, he was actually, he was known as the sage of Highgate Hill. Uh -huh. At the time, he was living in Highgate Hill with a doctor. Yeah. To cure his, you know, yeah. problem. Yeah. Uh, and eventually established a uh, relationship with uh, the pharmacist there who would give him laudanum for, yeah. Uh, so yeah. that didn't work. But he no. would sit in Highgate Park, which is a park in Highgate. Yes. No, in Waterloo Park, which is a park in Highgate. Uh -huh. and, um, and it's known as, like, the garden for the gardenless. Oh, and really? People, yeah. I didn't know that. And people would come from, like, all over London just to get his advice, and he was just sitting on Highgate Hill. <laughs> wow. While he, was, while he was on opium. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then, so he wrote, you know, he, he really screwed up. He eventually, the, I, I mentioned the Rome of the Ancient Mariner, um, so he wrote The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, and then he decided that for his health he had to go to Malta. Um, and no, it doesn't quite work that way, although almost. Um, it's not Morocco. Um, and um, that was his first real sea voyage, and um, he discovered that he got like all the, um, all the naval stuff about the ancient mariner wrong. Um, like there's a scene in the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner where the crescent moon rises um, at, at dusk and the crescent moon just hangs in the sky all night long and sets at sunrise. And he probably, being Coleridge and being un, an unstoppable talker, I quoted Hazlitt to you on that, right? That, uh, I thought I did. Um, Hazlitt, who is uh, um, one of the great romantic prose writers, um, uh, this has an essay called My First Acquaintance with the Poets where um, he, where Coleridge was going to come preach. Coleridge was a Unitarian minister um, during his pantheist years. He stayed Unitarian. Um, Unitarian minister, as you know, just means um, you get to say anything you want about anything. Um, and um, so he, Hazlitt's father was also a minister in Coleridge who was this phenomenon, came to preach and Hazlitt, a young boy at the time, like seven or eight, um, asked his father whether he could come and, and pick Coleridge up at the coach station. And his father said, sure. And they were waiting for this great man. And what they saw were two women and a very shabby um, person dressed all in black who was talking. Um, and then Hazlitt writes, I do not know that he has ceased talking from that moment to this. Um, <laughs> So Coleridge just, he was an endless talker. There's a book of his table talk. It's actually several volumes long um, <laughs> that you can get. And there's a famous account of a dinner that he and Wordsworth were both at where um, Wordsworth was at one end of the table and Coleridge at the other end of the table. And the um, entire evening consisted of half the table hearing Wordsworth talk and half the table hearing Coleridge talk. Um, and luckily they were just like two spheres that didn't quite, um, you couldn't quite hear both of them at the same time, so it depended which side you were on. Um, but, so on this trip to Malta, um, he read the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner to the sailors, of course, um, and they said, excuse me, a crescent moon all night long? 
Um, and uh, they basically laughed at a whole lot of the mistakes that he'd made up about what being on a ship was like. Um, so he rewrote it. Um, so there are actually two versions of the poem. And they're some, um, they're both great. They're a little bit different from each other in significant places, not only in descriptions of moonlight. Um, but they are both great. Um, but then when he got back from Malta, which supposedly cured him, um, Wordsworth wrote his great poem, The Prelude, his endless, long, philosophical poem, The Prelude, as a poem for Coleridge, kind of describing um, what, how he was feeling and, and um, what he was doing while Coleridge was gone. Um, and then, um, and Wordsworth just called it the poem to Coleridge. Um, the, the, um, the, the title of the prelude was only given to it after Wordsworth's death. It was only published after his death. And that was the title the editors gave it. Um, and, but then Coleridge got back and he decided that he was going to turn over a new leaf and he needed money, so he decided he'd write an autobiography called a great, great book, one of the great books of English critical history called Biographia Literaria which is going to make him some money, and he would also explain how he kicked the opium habit. But the pressures of writing it made him need to um, console himself just now and again with huge and copious and endless quantities of laudanum. Um, so he re-addicted himself, writing about how he kicked his addiction. Um, Did he, he realize they were both opium? Or that they were what? <laughs> they were both opium. That laudanum is opium, yeah. yeah Wait, there's opium in this? No, no, no. It's the It's it's like it's like cough medicine with codeine. It's the alcohol part is not, you know, it 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 gives it a little kick. But no, they knew. Not that you need more kick with opium. No, but um, it it's, uh, it laudanum was actually used. For, it, it was for coughs, and the alcohol helps with coughs too. Um, but it was. Yeah, Coleridge and then Thomas, Thomas de Quincey, who's famous as writing Confessions of an English Opium Eater, um, wrote about Coleridge's inability to kick the habit and how bad that was, and de Quincey knew because he was in the same situation. Um, and Confessions of an English Opium Eater. Um, de Quincey was a close friend of both Coleridge and Wordsworth, um, and Confessions of an English Opium Eater is another great book. Um, Anyhow, uh, yeah. Did Coleridge do opium until he died? Um, probably on and off, yeah. I mean, he sort of uh, got the monkey off his back a little bit um, in the late teens, and then he died in the early 30s. Um, but yeah, he had a he screwed himself up. Some of his later some of his later poems, which are clearly poems of of um, the kind of misery. That um, that he laid out for himself. Um, are, they're really, they're really uh, strange and hard poems. But there's one called Limbo, um, and there's a depiction in it. It's actually worth comparing. See, so you should take romanticism. Um, it's worth comparing Limbo to Frost at Midnight. Um, there's a depiction in it of a kind of strange opiated dream, probably, um, where he says. Um, but that, that is lovely, looks like human time. That is, he sees a figure, he has an image of a, a vision of a figure, and he says, it looks like human time. Um, and the moon is shining down on this figure, um, and, and he's, he's lightning, um, lightning the figure, and the figure looks up at the moon, and he says, it's beautiful. And then he realizes the figure looking up at the moon is blind. 
and he says it seems to get the moons he seems to gaze on that which seems to gaze on him um, that's the figure looking apparently looking up at the moon so the icicles quietly shining to the quiet moon that will come back in a nightmarish way to haunt Coleridge later these are notebook poems that he never published and they were only published I think in the 20th century um, but they really are quite scary and quite amazing um, so yeah and Kubla Khan you probably know is about um, there's the famous visitor from Porlock um, so Kublai Khan, I quoted for you before, in Xanadu to Kublai Khan, a stately pleasure dome decree where Alf, the sacred river, ran through caverns, measureless men, down to a sunless sea. Um, and he says, okay, I'm publishing this fragment. Um, it's about 100 lines long. He says, I'm publishing this fragment. What happened was the author, suffering a mild disposition, a mild cold, um, wanting to feel a little bit better, quite innocently took um, some laudanum. Uh, you know, which is the doctor's orders, and it was all fine. You know, it's like taking Sudafed, um, except you couldn't make ecstasy out of it. Um, and um, then fell into a profound sleep where the entire poem came to my mind at once. And I had the entire thing. It was some two or three hundred lines long. It was an amazing poem. It was just great. And then I woke up and found that I really did have the entire poem, so I started writing it down immediately, when there came a knock on a door and there was um, a visitor um, from Porlock who had some business which detained me for about an hour. Um, but after, I, after he finally left, I sat down to finish the poem and found that, except for a couple of wisps and fragments, it had all disappeared from my mind. Um, and so I'm only going to give you the part that I wrote down before the visitor from Porlock came. So um, that's a poem who's very... Um, introduction by Coleridge tells us that it's the product of an opium dream and that both its success and its failure are due to that fact, to um, the fact that it was this, this kind of opiated vision that um, he didn't have the diligence or persistency or ability or, resi or, or resilience um, to finish the poem once he was interrupted um, because of his, his addicted state. Um, it is a great poem, though. Um, so, Tintern Abbey, uh, one of Wordsworth's great poems, is actually properly called Lines Composed a Few Miles Above Tintern Abbey on Revisiting the Banks of the Wye during a tour, July 13, 1798. And the crucial word in that long, long title is revisiting. That is, he's been there before. Um, he is now 28 when he's two years older than Coleridge. He's 28, he's doing a walking tour. Um, and he revisits this place, and on July 13, 1798, actually probably um, there's good evidence to think that it was that day plus the next day or two it took him to write the poem. He didn't write it in one sitting, but in two or three sittings. Um, he describes this revisiting, and notice how, as we go through it, notice how much, in a lot of ways, it's like Frosted Midnight. Um, that is, it's a memory of memory and a memory of anticipation. So five years have passed. He was 23 last time he was there. Five years have passed. Five summers with the length of five long winters. 
So it's summer, and he hasn't been there the previous five summers, and that time is like five long winters. And again, I hear these waters rolling from their mountain springs with a sweet inland murmur. Again, notice how Coleridge used the word sweet, my sweet birthplace, the sweetly sounding uh, melody of the bells. Once again, do I behold these steep and lofty cliffs that on a wild secluded scene impress thoughts of more deep seclusion. So that's like the silence in Frosted Midnight, that you look at a secluded scene and it makes you think not, oh, this is so secluded, but makes you think of an even deeper seclusion. It's, it isn't itself but in the way that it's itself, it makes you um, not perceive it, but think about something which is even deeper than what you're getting from it. Um, that is what Coleridge was calling vexation. That is that it vexes thought with its extreme silence. It's as though silence is so silent that it's not silent. Here the seclusion is so deep that it's not secluded enough and you think of even deeper seclusion. Uh, Wordsworth will use the word vex in the same way as Coleridge does, not in this poem, but in um, the opening to the prelude. Uh, that is, he will say of his poetic powers that they become um, a tempest, a redundant energy that vexes its own creation. Uh, the word vex is an interesting one. Um, so once again, do I behold these steep and lofty cliffs that on a wild secluded scene impress thoughts of more deep seclusion and connect the landscape with the quiet of the sky? Um, the cliffs do. The landscape and the sky are connected by these towering cliffs. Um, the day is come when I again repose here under this dark sycamore and view these plots of cottage ground, these orchard tufts, which at their season, when their unripe fruits are clad in one green hue, which at this season, with their excuse me, with their unripe fruits, are clad in one green hue. So the fruits and the and the leaves and everything is green, and lose themselves among the woods and copses, nor disturb the wild green landscape. Once again, I see these hedgerows, hardly hedgerows, little lines of sportive wood run wild. These pastoral farms, green to the very door. It's all green and wreaths of smoke sent up in silence from among the trees with some uncertain notice. As might seem of vagrant dwellers in the houseless woods or some hermit's cave where by his fire the hermit sits alone. So there are, there's just, there may be people there, but they're very, very um, insistent on their own solitude. Um, Thoreau might be there. Thoreau, who was a great reader of Wordsworth. Um, 50 years later. Um, these beauteous forms, what he's now claims he's seeing as he writes, these beauteous forms through a long absence have not been to me as is a landscape to a blind man's eye. Um, and just to say, you would not go far wrong if you saw the, the blind man here as Milton. That is, he's saying, I'm writing a completely different kind of poetry from Milton's. Milton thought what you should write poetry about was heaven and hell and mythology. But what I'm saying is, no, here's a real place. And I'm not a blind man the way Milton was. Milton was blind. I'm looking at this real place and these real beauteous forms. So 
So I'm writing about what you can see in the real world. These beauteous forms through a long absence have not been to me as is a landscape to a blind man's eyes, but oft in lonely rooms amid the din of towns and cities, I have owed to them in hours of weariness sensation sweet. There's that word sweet again. So when he was in cities, remember Coleridge was in, um, it was in popular cloisters pent. Oft when I was in cities, I have owed to remembering this scene, sensation sweet, felt in the blood and felt along the heart. A great phrase, along the heart. Felt in the blood and felt along the heart and passing even into my purer mind with tranquil restoration. Feelings, too, of unremembered pleasure. So there, even I remember um, these dim feelings when I had just little, little um, bursts of pleasure that I hardly remember now when I was in the city, but it must have come from memories of Tintern Abbey and the River Wye above it. Feelings, too, of unremembered pleasure, such, perhaps, as have no slight or trivial influence on that best portion of a good man's life, his little nameless, unremembered acts of kindness and of love. Um, that's probably the most famous line from Tintern Abbey. The little, his little, that best portion of a good man's life, his little, nameless, unremembered acts of kindness and of love, picking up from unremembered pleasures. Nor less, I trust, to them I may have owed another gift, so not only whatever virtues I had and whatever pleasure I had in um, doing little nameless unremembered acts of kindness and of love, but another gift of aspect more sublime, that blessed mood. So it's maybe from these hills that I got that blessed mood in which the heavy, sorry, that blessed mood in which the burden of the mystery in which the heavy and the weary weight of all this unintelligible world is lightened. So that's the default mood, is that we're burdened by what we don't know, by what we do not know. We're burdened by some mystery of the unintelligibility of our lives. Why do we exist? Why do we have to do this every day? But sometimes, and I think for me it was by remembering Tintern Abbey, I felt that burden lightened, that blessed mood in which it's lightened, in which we don't feel that burden of what, what is this? Why do we live? Why this meaningless life? But that weary weight is lightened, that serene and blessed mood in which the affections gently lead us on, in which we go forward simply out of love until the breath of this corporeal frame that is our body's own breath, and even the motion of our human blood, almost suspended, we are laid asleep in body and become a living soul. So it's as though um, in that mood I go into a kind of Coleridgean trance. My body isn't moving anymore. I'm not paying attention to the world around me. I can not even aware anymore of my own breathing, even of my blood, but in myself, in my soul, in my mind, I become a living soul. While with an eye made quiet by the power of harmony and the deep power of joy, we see into the life of things. 
So those moods of pure meditation where all seems to make sense, I think I owe them from memory to memories of this scene here in Tintern Abbey, even when I had those moods in the city and felt that I could see into the light of things. Now, you may be saying, this is not a real mood. This is illusory, and it's passive, and it's transitory, and passing, and you're sure making a lot out of your memory of some landscapes. Um, he thinks you might be right. If this be but a vain belief, if this is just a mood, mood's not necessarily a word that you should rely on or that, that describes something that you should rely on, that blessed mood, not that blessed state, but that blessed mood. Yeats will later describe, will end a poem where he says, um, we, we are blessing and can bless. Everything we look upon is blessed. And then a week later, he writes a poem describing the poem he wrote a week before in which everything seemed blessed, and he summarizes how he felt, and he says, for 15 minutes, more or less, I was blessed and could bless. Um, yeah, it's a mood. When you have that mood, you think you have it all. But it turns out just to be a mood. It could very well be a vain belief, if this be but a vain belief. Yet, and this part isn't a vain belief, Yet, oh, how often darkness and amid the many shapes of joyless daylight, when the fretful stir unprofitable and the fever of the world have hung upon the beatings of my heart, how oft in spirit have I turned to thee, O Sylvan, why, thou wanderer through the woods, how often has my spirit turned to thee. So maybe it was just nothing serious, but still, the, your memory helped me. Often, my spirit turned to you. And now he's back. And now, with gleams of half-extinguished thought, with many recognitions dim and faint and somewhat of a sad perplexity, the picture of the mind revives again. Very um, ambivalent and ambiguous situation. He's seeing it again. And now he's actually feeling a little sad perplexity. That is, he sees the real thing gave him a memory in the city. And now he returns to the real thing, which is kind of bringing the memory that he had of it back. The picture of the mind revives again. Not, oh, the thing that I've been picturing is here in reality. But rather, it reminds me of the picture that I had of it. But how well it reminds me of that, that's a question. While here I stand, not only with a sense of present pleasure, but with pleasing thoughts that in this moment there is life and food for future years. So I'm a little bit sad and perplexed, but I hope that when I look, what I'm looking at now, in the future I will remember this, and it will give me food and life when I'm back away from this. Let me look at it now so that I'll remember it again, and that memory will help me. So he's really in a sort of um, oddly non, not quite present place. He's looking at the scene and comparing it with his memory. He remembers remembering the scene, and he's comparing it with the memory 
that he had of it, not with the memory that he has of it, which is obvious, and, and we all do that, but the memory that he had of it in the city. Mariel? Um, would this be at all inspired by the Eaton College book? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Can you go home again? Can you go to Eaton College or can you go to Tintern Abbey again? And the answer is, well, not really. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but he's hoping that he'll look at this scene and that even if it kind of isn't doing what he thought it would do when he went back to see it, that in the future he'll remember seeing it now and it will matter then. So the future and that so so he cannot be self-present anymore, just as Coleridge couldn't be self-present in Frost and Midnight. He wants Hartley to be self-present. You won't have to deal with this stuff, he says to Hartley. For you, it won't be a memory, but it'll be always present to you. Coleridge is all Coleridge Wordsworth is also thinking about the vexed and um perplexed relationship between experience and memory. Once you have enough experience to know that it will lead to memory and that the memory will be deceptive in certain ways. So he's hoping that in this moment there's life and food for future years. So then you get that very strange line. And so I dare to hope. So I dare to hope. Wow as though hoping is already taking a huge chance. And so I dare to hope. Though changed, no doubt, he has to face it. Though changed, no doubt, from what I was when first I came among these hills, when like a row I bounded o'er the mountains by the sides of the deep rivers and the lonely streams, wherever nature led. So yeah, Mariel, that would definitely be the Eaton College moment. When I was a kid and just ran around here thoughtlessly, more like a man flying from something that he dreads than one who sought the thing he loved. Um, another complicating moment, but it wasn't that I ran around here in joy because I loved it so much. It's that somewhere unconsciously I knew that the future was, was coming towards me. And I ran like a maniac around Tintern Abbey when I was, when I was young um, because there was something dreadful that I didn't want to know about. Um, for nature then, when I was a boy. And then he says, not really a boy, the coarser pleasures of my boyish days and their, days and their glad animal movements all gone by. That is, um, before I even noticed nature at all, and I was just um, whooping, at a, whooping around on the hills. But nature then, um, to me, was all in all. That, by the way, he's, quote, he's again quoting Paradise Lost there. Um, all in all. It doesn't sound like it, but, it, but, it, but he is. Um, the line in Paradise Lost he's thinking about is a line where God declares that in the future, after the final defeat of Satan, God says, God shall be all in all. Um, and that's a pantheistic moment in Paradise Lost. Um, here, what he's saying is, well, no, not God, but nature was then for me all in all. I cannot paint what then I was. The sounding cataract haunted me like a passion. The tall rock, the mountain, and the deep and gloomy wood, their colors and forms were then to me an appetite, a feeling and a love that had no need of a remoter charm by thought supplied. So I didn't have to think about any of this. It was all absolutely present to me, no thought necessary, a remoter charm supplied by thought, nor any interest unborrowed from the eye. What I saw, I loved. That time is past. If there's a 
typical Wordsworthian line, it's that, that time has passed. First words of the Intimations Ode, which I told you is the most important poem in the last few hundred years. There was a time. That time has passed. And all its aching joys are now no more, and all its dizzy raptures. Not for this faint eye, nor mourn, nor murmur. So it's bad, but I'm, I'm dealing. Other gifts have followed. I lost that absolute oneness with nature, but other gifts have followed. For such loss, I would believe abundant recompense. I've gotten a lot of stuff that I didn't have then. I've got recompensed for the loss of that relation to nature. What's the recompense? Well, it's sadness. For I have learned to look on nature, not as in the hour of thoughtless youth, but hearing oftentimes the still sad music of humanity, nor harsh nor grating, though of ample power to chasten and subdue. And I have felt a presence that disturbs me with the joy of elevated thoughts. So now he's brought into elevated thoughts. Then he didn't need thought. Now he's felt some other presence that disturbs me with the joy, a disturbing joy. That, again, is like Coleridge's vexation that disturbs me with the joy of elevated thoughts, a sense sublime of something far more deeply interfused than what I had then. That is that everything goes deep in me. Then I lived all on the surface and it was great. Now I feel depth. And that is deeper, but less great. But let's focus on the depth, the sense sublime of something far more deeply interfused, whose dwelling is the light of setting suns. Setting because time is passing and darkness is coming. But it lives in the light of setting suns, and the round ocean and the living air and the blue sky, and in the mind of man there's thought again. Emotion and a spirit that impels all thinking things, all objects of all thought, and rolls through all things. Therefore, am I still a lover of the meadows and the woods and mountains, and of all that we behold from this green earth, and of all the mighty world of eye and ear, and then the line from Young, both what they half create and what perceive. So we do half create now as adults this world that we love. Back when I was a boy, I just loved it. Now I have, I have created with my own thought. Well pleased to recognize in nature and the language of the sense the anchor of my purest thought. So I have these thoughts and they're anchored in nature. I'm glad. Nature is the nurse, the guide, the guardian of my heart and soul of all my moral being. So it helps Tintern Abbey, but it's not the whole anymore. Nor, chance, nor perchance, if I were not thus taught, should I the more suffer my genial spirits to decay. Even if I didn't have these thoughts, I would still be happy. Why? For thou art with me here upon the banks of this fair river. He's talking to his sister, Dorothy, who's about five years younger than he is. And he says, well, you know, even if I didn't feel this way, I'm happy because you're here. And Dorothy in this poem is like Hartley in um, Frost at Midnight, because now he's going to say... Um, don't make the mistakes I made, but just live in nature, the way Coleridge says it to his son. Um, For thou art here upon the banks of this fair river, thou, my dearest friend, my dear, dear friend, in thy voice I catch the language of my former heart, what I was like, and read my former pleasures in the shooting lights of thy wild eyes. 
Oh, yet a little while may I behold in thee what I was once, my dear, dear sister. And this prayer I make, knowing that nature never did betray the heart that loved her. So he's making a prayer to nature. Tis her privilege through all the years of this our life to lead from joy to joy, for she can so inform the mind that is within us, so impress with quietness and beauty, and so feed with lofty thoughts that neither evil tongues, rash judgments, nor the sneers of selfish men, nor greetings where no kindness is, nor all the dreary intercourse of daily life shall e'er prevail against us or disturb our cheerful faith that all that which we behold is full of blessings. So life as an adult sucks, but if you stick with nature, you can avoid all these sucky things. And so the prayer, the blessing to Dorothy, therefore let the moon shine on thee in thy solitary walk, and let the misty mountain winds be free to blow against thee, and in after years, when these wild ecstasies shall be matured into a sober pleasure, when thy mind shall be a mansion for all lovely forms, thy memory be as a dwelling place for all sweet sounds and harmonies. Oh, then, if solitude or fear or pain or grief shall be thy portion, with what healing thoughts of tender joy wilt thou remember me in these my exhortations? So now he's looking to a future where she will feel sad too, but will remember the present. Nor perchance if I should be where I no more can hear thy voice if I'm dead, nor catch from thy wild eyes these gleams of past existence, his own past existence, Wilt thou then forget that on the banks of this delightful stream we stood together, and that I, so long a worshipper of nature, hither came unwearied in that service to nature? Rather say with warmer love, oh, with far deeper zeal of holier love. Nor wilt thou then forget that after many wanderings, many years of absence, these steep woods and lofty cliffs and this green pastoral landscape were to me more dear both for themselves and for thy sake. So thinking of her, thinking of this, um, and thinking of her and how she in the future will think of this the way he is thinking of it in the present, um, made it all the deeper and all the dearer. Um, he brings the human into it a little bit the way Coleridge does. It's not only me and nature. It's not only solipsism. But it's thinking about other people thinking about nature that brings the um, sober, the still sad music of humanity, as he calls it. And he gives up pleasure and ecstasy. Inevitably, we all do. But what he wants to believe, the abundant recompense he wants to believe in, is depth, um, not ecstasy that you can't keep. But seeing that you can't keep it might give you depth and seeing that other people have the same experience can also give you depth. Um, is that a recompense or not? That's always the question in Wordsworth's poetry. Okay, as I say, very different from where we started, so you should think we've done a lot, but I will um, see you, or most of you, Tuesday. <laughs>